take two. <laughs> Thank you. Hmm. So here we are. It seems like we're uh, coming to the end of the retreat, judging by the talking and the volume and the happiness and the smiles and the, the energy. It's amazing what happens when we take the lid off the silence. It's literally like a can, you know, you've been inside this can for two months, one month or two months, and then suddenly we peel the top off and jack-in-the-box pops out. (laughs) These happy, bright, delighted faces. Even if your retreat sucked. (laughs) Even more so. (laughs) Oh, finally. Talk and laugh and breathe and yeah, very sweet, very sweet. And um, yeah, I also wanted to sort of reiterate uh, what Bonnie was saying yesterday, uh, which was delightful listening to her talk and uh, about bowing to your practice. You know, it's been so delightful for all of us to to you know come in and out of the hall and in and out of your practice and feel the, the, the incredible sincerity. This is really hard work. This is a work school. Buddhism's a work school. You know, it's not a play school, it's a work school. And then you know you did a lot of work, a lot of graft to be here, to stay here. Right? How many times did you want to go down to your car and drive off? You know? <laughs> I heard from quite a few. Um, so, yeah, just a deep, you know, deep bow of respect for your practice and all the things that you've worked with and, and struggled with and, and seen through and healed and illuminated. Even the frogs are cheering you on. So what I want to talk about tonight is um, uh, the process of, or the really continuation of Bonnie's talk, the process of, of going home, transitioning, and what that's about, how to hold that, what to think about in relationship to that. So I'm just going to share some thoughts and, and comments. And you know, you've all done a lot of practice. You've all been through this transition plenty. So you all have your own ways and experience and knowledge of how to do this. Right? And it also doesn't hurt to hear some reminders. You know, like don't check all of your emails you know, tonight. You know, if you could anyway, don't. <laughs> it's completely miserable. <laughs> I check mine every night, it's miserable. <laughs> There's so many things you've been blissfully secluded from. You know, Facebook and spam and <laughs> texts. And I know that sounds kind of fun because we get a little dopamine rush every time we get one of those things. We get a little ping, ooh. But it's actually not that satisfying. You know, it's a kind of a, it's modern dukkha, isn't it? You know, we think, oh, another email, ooh, oh no, it's another work email. (laughs) So, from one perspective, uh, the world out there, as it were, ordinary life, day-to-day life, is a little different than what you've been doing here, as you may remember. Hopefully you remember what it's like. It's busy, it's noisy, it's fast. People haven't been developing 
the five spiritual faculties and the seven factors of awakening, and at least not that I've observed. <laughs> you know, I've been developing a lot of consumerism and thinking, and you know, our friend Harry Cohen likes to talk about our normal retreat in life is think as much as you can, go after every desire that you can muster up, get rid of everything you hate. You know, that's our practice in life, right? that's what people have been practicing. And you've been practicing something very different here, aside from the stillness and the container and the presence. And you, you know, you'll feel that you'll feel that transition as you move from the safety and the confines of these embracing hills and the community and the staff and the teachers. And even just going shopping, I know when I go when I leave retreat and I go shopping and go into Safeways or Whole Foods or whatever. You know, and there's 73 varieties of yogurt, yogurt, should I say, or milk, there's 23 kinds of milk, you know. It's like, oh, I haven't had to make a single decision for two months or a whole month. You know, I hear a bell and I go somewhere. I follow the crowd, (laughs) I hear a bell and I go somewhere. (laughs) I hear a bell, someone feeds me, you know. (laughs) It's pretty good. And so sometimes the, the initial transition, we feel a little dysfunctional. It's like we've regressed in some ways. You know, we haven't had to do anything, we haven't had to take care of business. Sometimes people get pulled over, leaving here or leaving IMS, for driving too slow. <laughs> oh my God, this is really intense. Oh, it's 15 miles an hour, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I'm tripping. <laughs> Driving's never felt so much fun, or so scary. In the office, you know, the officers now they know the spirit rock folks. Oh yeah, just move a little quick. Follow the speed limit, please. So, and then from another perspective, it's all the same. Yeah, and from a, from a deeper place, there isn't so much difference. It's more sight, it's more sounds, more smells, more taste, more touch, more thoughts. More appearances, more empty appearances, conditioned appearances coming and going in awareness. What I love to reflect on is, you know, when we, when we you know, get in our cars or our buses or our trains or our planes, our bicycles, hopefully, and we're moving along, we're not going anywhere. We never go anywhere. We just remain right here. And the world appears and disappears, especially like if you're on a train, you see the world appear and disappear. If you're on a plane at 30,000 feet flying 500 miles an hour, we're just right here. And just more phenomena coming and going. It's just like a meditation appearance from a certain perspective. And so from that place, you're already, you're already at home. There isn't any transition. There isn't any going back into anything. You're already just here. And you know what true home is. Right? You've got your homes and your houses, yeah, as it were. But where's the real, where does the heart have its resting place? And so you've been tasting and touching into that a lot, that you're already home. 
Some part of us knows this very deeply and then we forget. We think it's somewhere else. The good news that I like to take refuge in in this practice and this transition is the practice is already within you. The practice, presence, awareness, wakefulness, love, kindness, compassion. These are all innate qualities to your being. And again, we've tasted them, touched them, developed them, they flowered. We didn't go into a closet and, you know, stick them all over us. No, they came from within. We're peeling away the clouds so they can shine more. But they're already within us, already within you. And you know that. Right? You've tasted that to some degree or to a large degree. So no matter how f- spaced out you get, how f- lost you get, how reactive at the airport because the plane has been inevitably delayed 16 hours, mechanical failure, if you fly with United, um, <laughs> or American, <laughs> And you, you find yourself getting agitated and frustrated or anxious or fearful or angry. And then the, the judging mind comes in, oh my God, look, I barely left the retreat and I'm already you know, venting on somebody and I'm you know, feeling crappy. And, and then we remember, oh yeah, we take a breath. We feel our feet, we feel our belly. We remember our heart. Or maybe a metaphrase pops out that the, we, we see there's a human being who's, who's distressed dealing with all these irate customers and we go, oh, oh, may you be happy, may you be safe. And so we return, just like here, we, we space out. How many, how many times have you, you know, if we count up all the times all of you have spaced out? It's like millions of times, right? Millions in one day. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come back. And we come back, we take refuge in coming back, in returning here. It, I find that very reassuring, you know, because I space out plenty, I get caught plenty, I get reactive plenty. You know, and over time there's a deeper and deeper knowing, even when I'm, when I'm lost and caught, there's, deep, there's that knowing seems to permeate that, and there's a possibility of returning. And there's a possibility of forgiveness. And there's a possibility of starting over. Yeah, which we do every every time. Ugin Tolko Rinpoche used to say, um, uh, "Mindfulness is relatively easy; remembering is difficult." Yeah. So once we've established, once we've re-arrived, oh yeah, we can be present. We can be heartful. And so the practice is remembering, and and on the retreat. In practice, we sow you know, these seeds of intention of remembering very deeply, millions of times. Remember, come back, come back, come back, come back, return, just this, just this, be here. Yeah. And they, they will continue to sprout, to take birth, to re-arise out of the fruits of your practice, the fruits of your efforts. So sometimes we say we take our practice into the world, right? 
And there's a, there's, a, there's a place for saying that. And there's a place for saying, well, do we take anything with us anywhere? Right? It's not like we sort of stuff a, you know, a, you know, practice into a little knapsack and we, you know, <laughs> take it home with us. No. It's simply the sum of all of our practice is how we meet this moment, how we meet this, how we meet the taxi driver, and how we meet, you know, standing in line at Starbucks for this fantasy cappuccino that we've been waiting for for six weeks, you know, or whatever the moment is, you know, losing your toothbrush, you know, when you're trying to pack, or how do we meet this moment when we go to call our loved ones, you know? So one of my teachers asked me, what, what, how, how did I understand awakening? What was, and, you know, and I came up with some really fancy, lofty, somewhat conceptual answer. And she was very unimpressed. <laughs> and I said, well, how about, how about for you? She said, it's how I meet this moment. How I meet this. This is all we've got. Yeah. The fullness of presence meeting this. This is from Thoreau. He wrote, What we do best, or most imperfectly, is what we have most thoroughly learnt by the longest practice, and at length it falls from us without our notice, as a leaf from a tree. What we do best, or most imperfectly, is what we have most thoroughly learnt by the longest practice, and at length it falls from us without our notice as a leaf from a tree. I love that. I think that so beautifully summarizes in some ways what we're doing here. We practice imperfectly until it just flows from us. It falls from us effortlessly, gracefully, naturally, spontaneously. And that's something we can trust. And it deepens over time. So this transition phase, you know, we can, you can hold it in terms of uh, generosity. You know, your practice is a generosity. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a gener- it's a practice of generosity for the world. You know, I'm always amused by when, um, you know, you first used to practice, and, and I'd tell people I'd go, I was going on a retreat, and they would say pretty mm, reliably, oh, that's pretty selfish. You're just going away to do your own thing, gaze at your navel, and you know, what about helping others or you know, doing something useful in the world? It was fine to go to this, you know, the Costa Brava in Spain and get utterly drunk for two weeks and come back completely fried and wrecked. That wasn't selfish. But to go and retreat and develop awareness and presence and kindness and clarity and insight and wisdom was considered selfish. Which one was a gift to the world? So your practice is an act of generosity to yourself because you're relieving yourself from your own suffering, your own uh, lack of seeing. And it's a gift, of course, for your loved ones (laughs) who will benefit greatly (laughs) from your increased clarity and kindness and patience and tolerance and forgiveness. And so... um, uh, so you can think of, your, as, as you leave the retreat, 
uh, as, as a practice of giving away your practice, giving away the retreat, giving away the blessing, just as Bonnie demonstrated this beautiful practice of, of um, dedicating merit, you know, to, you know, to give your practice away, give the blessings away in how you are and how you live. I, want, I asked uh, one a yogi here, um, you know, what he was taking away. How, you know, I, I try to summarize, I try to sort of say what I'm saying in this talk in a question, which I said quite clumsily of, you know, how are you t- holding, taking, transitioning, moving? What are you taking with you? And he said something like, um, you know, I've tasted the whole universe. And so that's what I'm taking. It's just beautiful. I'm speechless. So um, uh, this is a poem from Palestinian poet Naim Shihab Nai that I like that speaks to this uh, quality of, of, of the joy that can come from practice and how we also share it and give it away. Uh, she says, It is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful tree house and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you, un- cannot make you unhappy, nor the floor which needs to be swept and the soiled linens and the scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug You raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as this night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you raise your hands and it flows out of you. I can feel it walking around the days. You know, just it's 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 like, like these effervescent fountains. It's like flowing, bubbling. There's so much life and love and juice and radiance. And it's very sweet for us to to feel to to be to receive that, as I'm sure it is for you when you're talking and meeting each other and playing. So uh, one way to think about this transition is to, in however, however long you've been on retreat, whether it's one month or two months or some of you even longer, to think of this as the midway point of the retreat and to think of the next month or two as the second half of the retreat, that you give as much quality care and attention and um, curiosity and carefulness to yourself, to what you encounter, to people you meet. So rather than thinking like, well, I did that practice and now I'm just going to go do my life. No, it's like, no, I'm, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is as juicy and as insightful possibly for many of you. So I like that analogy in the Zen tradition of the ox herding pictures, which I don't know so well, but... Um, the metaphor of uh, uh, of the path where um, the student goes in search of the ox, goes into the forest. And it's a metaphor for looking for our mind, looking for the nature of mind, 
finding the ox, it's wild, it's untamed, and it needs to be trained and disciplined and tamed and eventually come into harmony with, become one with, uh, unified with the nature of mind, with a, a true nature. And then there's a coming, there's a bringing the ox back down into the village, into the marketplace, into the very heart of our lives. Yeah, and it's where we bring the fruit of all of this work into how we live. And one of the, one of the great gifts that we have is, um, uh, you know, from this point you have a lot of clarity. Even if you don't think you have a lot of clarity, you have a lot of clarity. <laughs> and you certainly have a lot more clarity than when you arrive, probably. And it's a really good vantage point in which to look at yourself and your life and the world, because the qualities we develop here are so much, so much the qualities the world needs. Patience, kindness, clarity, peace, presence, attentiveness. And so in the second half of the retreat, you can often see the fruits of this practice by how you engage in a very fresh way. You know, just as the, the quote that Jack read um, by um, T.S. Eliot at the beginning of the retreat about, you know, uh, we shall never cease our searching and at the end of all of our searching will be to arrive exactly where we started and know the place for the very first time. That will be the same for you when you go home, to know the place for the very first time. When you go and meet your spouse or your housemate or your neighbors or your kids or your parents or whoever it is that you're going home to, um, you'll see them with fresh eyes. And it's a beautiful thing. Because sometimes when we live with people and we, we're so around people, we stop seeing, you know? We see them through our ideas of who they are and our projections and assumptions. And then it's like, oh, who are you? I don't know who you are. Let me stay curious. What would that be like to be in a relationship like that? Even when they say, oh, I'm glad you're home, now go put the trash out. It's all, it's all the same, it's all good. Trash, no trash. This is from Achan Cha, something that we've read a lot. Um, at times, sitting for hours on end is not necessary, he says. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nest for days on end. <laughs> Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning and continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you sit. What is important that you, is that you keep watchful whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom or driving the car or checking email or taking the trash out. This is from the Buddha, putting it in a, um, in a way that he does, very eloquent and... There and this is this is this is it. And what I, I'm reading this is because it's for this is for lay. He's talking about lay practitioners. There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white or multicolors in this case, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, 
have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching. There are these hundreds and beyond numerous disciples, clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, those who have not taken the robes, who are living in the sensual world, which we do, who carry out my instruction, have gone beyond doubt, have understood the teaching, and gained liberation. So in the midst of our daily lives is where we now begin our practice. How we meet, how we open, how we understand whatever comes our way. Whether it's your IRS summons, your um, I, got a, I got an IRS audit summons the other day, which was not what I wanted to receive. Um, and um, so who knows what will be in your mailbox? Hopefully not that. <laughs> and there's a lot of wisdom in the world. There's, there's wisdom everywhere. We can learn from anyone and anywhere. It's not just up here, it's not just here, it's not just in these books and texts. You know, we never know where we're going to receive the teaching. And this, the sixth Zen patriarch, Hui Neng, woke up from listening to a conversation in the marketplace between uh, uh, a, tr- a market trade fishmonger and, and a customer. So you never know. It could be CNN. Unlikely, but you never know. It could be from a bumper sticker. They said, these are some things from a bumper sticker. Change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. <laughs> In lieu of Tr- Trudy's talk on vending machines and Coca-Cola. Um, sometimes I wake up grumpy. Other times I let him sleep. When you do a good deed, this is for me, get a receipt in case heaven is like the IRS. When there's a will, I want to be in it. Time is the best teacher. Unfortunately, it kills all students. (laughs) Takes a while to get that one, doesn't it? (laughs) It's lonely at the top, but you eat better. Something one about animals. Uh, if we aren't supposed to eat animals, why are they made of meat? <laughs> if you, uh, where is it? If we aren't supposed to eat animals, why are they made of meat? <laughs> it's really bad, but anyway. <laughs> it's not for the vegetarians in the room. I'm sorry. Consciousness, that annoying time between naps. (laughs) Be nice to your kids, they'll choose your nursing home. (laughs) And it goes on and on. So, you know, little snippets of wisdom everywhere. So as we leave retreat, uh, the main practice, despite everything I've said, uh, the main practice, I think, is one of letting go. 
we do let go of the conditions that we've that have so cherished us here. This beautiful hall, the land, the silence, the schedule, being cooked for three times a day, the community, at least the, the physical presence of the community. We let go of a lot of things when we leave retreat. And so we're invited, we're asked to not hold on. Right? To not cling to the form. Because if, we, if we're clinging, if we cling to something, you know, if I'm clinging to this, you know, I can't meet this. I can't meet what's in front of me because I'm clinging to this. Don't go, no, spirit rock, please. I mean, come back, <laughs> but let go when we need to let go. And of course, we cling. The ego is very Velcro-like. It sticks. Yeah. You notice that? The stickiness of the clinging mind. Maybe you've noticed as you've been talking, um, how quickly the personality comes back. Do you notice that? It's kind of shocking. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of like, Seems like it takes a vacation most of the time when you're sitting. Quiet, just showing up. You know, occasionally gets rubbed and agitated and rattled. Someone takes your zaffir or your shoes or something. But mostly it's quiet. And then we start talking and there I am. Who am I? I'm not sure who I am, but there, there's the familiar personality comes back. good to have a sense of humor when it does. Hopefully we can see at times we're caught in it and at times there's a certain spaciousness to spaciousness in the present to see. We kind of like we're watching ourselves do the Mark show or the John show or the Cornelia show or the Catherine show. Yeah. Playing itself out. Just like Wes said in the, the quote I mentioned the other day about it's like a pet comes out, you take it around, feed it, take it for walks. <laughs> Don't take it too seriously. Know that's not who you are. So letting go. Mm. I'm having to let go of most of my talk. <laughs> So, um, what are we letting go of? So there's obviously the attachment to the form and the, the retreat that I've mentioned. The retreats can also be a little cooking house for tanha, because you know, we practice somewhat renunciation here, right? And so there can be a lot of desire arising, especially towards the end of the retreat, of all the things that you've been wanting or repressing wanting, or there's a little kind of tanha fest goes on. 
Ooh, close, I can soon get. Mm, what can I have? Mm. So there's a there's a New York uh, New Yorker comic um, cartoon that has this picture of a goldfish bowl and uh, a couple of goldfish in it. No, wrong. <laughs> I just blew the joke. <laughs> Anyhow, so that was good. Uh, so there's another New Yorker cartoon <laughs> that. Um, uh, there's a couple of dolphins swimming in the ocean, and one's asking the other, "So, you know, what, what do you hope for? What, what's what's going to you know fulfill your life?" And the other one says, "You know, I'm hoping for a you know middle-aged white couple from Connecticut to come and swim with me. <laughs> That's really going to do it." I remember being in IMS a lot. I did a lot of practice there, and I would. Uh, and it was often do, I'd do walking at night around the village, uh, you know, by the houses on the road. And I would see this sort of warm, soft glow in the houses, and it looked always looked so inviting. You could see the flickering of the TV, and it just looked so comforting and familiar. And you know, I actually hate TV, but it just looked so appealing through the window. You know, so it's a really good practice to see the illusion that the mind builds up, and then the reality of our experience. So Dinah Winston, a friend and colleague, she talks about um, being at IMS, and she saw on the menu, she went down in the kitchen, she was bored, so she went in the kitchen and saw what the menu was for the week, and she saw, oh, there's pizza on Friday. Oh, pizza. Don't usually get pizza at IMS. And she spent the whole week thinking about pizza, and what kind it was, pepperoni, and then, no, no, pepperoni, it's not vegetarian. And she gets, you know, she gets goes up to the lunch line, you know, doesn't go too early because that would look like too greedy, so it like takes a few people back. And then gets, you know, has this whole ritual around getting all the pizza. And then she takes a bite, you know, and it's quite good. But the thought comes, oh, it's just pizza. (laughs) It's just pizza. Like, how good can it be? (laughs) Anyhow. So I'll be curious to see how your experience is when you, whenever, whatever that thing is that you're, you know, the mind keeps hoping, it keeps throwing out the fishing line, it's, right? Oh, that, that thing over there, that person, that experience. As Joseph wisely says around non-clinging, it doesn't matter what you're not clinging to. It doesn't matter what you're not clinging to. This is a really deep teaching. It doesn't matter what you're not clinging to. It just matters that you're not clinging. <laughs> it could be beautiful and ecstatic. It could be, you know, Handel's aria, or it could be, you know, that could be suffering or beauty, depending on your taste. <laughs> or it could be, you know, the most delicious thing, the most horrible thing. What matters is we're not clinging, we're not holding on. Which doesn't mean we don't enjoy it, we don't savor it, we don't relish it. The beauty of the flowers, of the blossoms, of the hills, of the birds, of the frogs, we enjoy it, but we don't strangle it. Sokni Rinpoche has this great metaphor. He'll hold up something like this, like, pretend this is, you know, well, maybe you've always wanted a bell stick. I don't know. This is, you know, does it for you. 
And he says, um, you know, with non-clinging, we're not getting rid of the thing, we're getting rid of the, the, the clinging is that which binds. Oh, I've got my glasses on. <laughs> it's what binds the, the very thing we're trying to appreciate. So we don't let go of, we don't need to reject the object, we just release the clinging. And then we allow the flower, the person, the experience to be as it is. And then it can do its job like ring a bell. So one of the gifts I think we get to practice when we go home is to, um, to practice non-clinging, non-grasping in relationship to people, to friends, to loved ones, to our colleagues, to our children, to our parents. You know, what a gift to hold them with a certain spaciousness. And particularly around our views. You know, and there's the, the third Zen patriarch says, if you want to know the truth, cease to cherish your opinions. Right? And one of the greatest stumbling blocks in our relationships is our opinions and views, our fixed views, which are often erroneous about, certainly about ourselves, but about others. What would it be to hold those, all those views lightly with our loved ones, with ones we think we know so well, and to just be with a sense of, I don't know, who are you? I barely know, you know, I can't say, I can't say who I am, so how can I know who you are? So to hold them lightly, and actually holding lightly allows the love to flow, because we actually see what is. The poet Mary Oliver says, um, if I can remember it, she says something like, "Mm, if I can pay attention to something long enough, I find love arising for whatever it is, for whatever it is. As long as I pay attention to it, love arises. If I give it that fullness of presence. And that has to be with beginner's mind that we started this retreat with. I remember when I um, started practice a long time ago, um, I was really obnoxious with my family. Um, I was like a born-again Buddhist. I was 19, and um, I was very zealous and was very idealistic. I wasn't trying to be obnoxious. I just, that was just the result <laughs> of being passionate and idealistic and judgmental. And it went inside, it went outside. And I had very high standards of them and what I thought was right and wrong and what Buddhism had to say about things, <clears throat> which, of course, they found very <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> I'm in, eternally in, uh, <laughs> regretful for those years of, well, the Buddha said, <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> um, so, and one of the things that we can happen as we leave retreat is we can be a little zealous about uh, wanting to share our experience, share our practice, and particularly share our insights about all these people that we know and love. <laughs> yeah, because we get a lot of clarity when we, we're sitting, you know, pretending to be with our breath, but thinking about our relationships. <laughs> and so we, you know, there's a lot of eagerness to get home and just tell them you know, what, what would improve their life and how things would be better if they did this X, Y, and Z. 
and meditated and uh, let me show you how and um, learn from my experience. It really doesn't help. <laughs> it really doesn't work. Um, you know, as the saying goes, be like a Buddha. You know, don't be a Buddhist. Don't preach. Don't be an evangelical in that sense. Unless, of course, people want to hear. Of course, you know, there's certain dear, near and dear ones that will love to hear about your experience. But probably not the bus driver who just wants to, you know, or someone at work who wants to know, so how was that thing that you did for a month? That, you know, weird Buddhist thing? They want to know that it was great, you're happy, you're sane, and you're back to work. Thank you very much. And how are you? You don't need to tell them about when the whole room was breathing, we were all breathing together, and <laughs> the, the walls were expanding and contracting, and there was oneness, and they just want to hear you had a good time, and, you know, thank you. So this is a story um, to learn from, uh, from Natalie Goldberg um, about uh, trying to convert your parents to meditation. My parents are visiting me in my home, new home in Santa Fe, it's a cool late July afternoon, and we are sitting on the porch. Amazingly, we're not, we are not eating. We're just staring straight ahead at the high adobe wall a hundred feet in front of us. We're sitting in the line. I'm in the middle. Hey, Nat, my father says, what is meditation? Well, it's hard to explain. Then because I'm young and still incredibly foolish, I have a brilliant, daring idea. Do you want to try? And before they can answer, I run into the house and get a bell. Accoutrements, I think, will make it official. Okay, when I ring the bell, you just sit and feel your breath go in and out of your nose. If your mind wanders, just bring it back gently to your breath. We'll sit for ten minutes. Okay, they both say, suddenly eager, and this will be fun, and they wriggle in their chairs to compose themselves. The bell sounds three times, and we settle into this most ordinary thing, people breathing next to each other. My father's on my right, my mother on my left. I cannot believe this is happening. Here we all are, paying attention. The ten minutes feel feels cool and spacious and forever. The shade is cool, we're all quiet. This must be what heaven is. The time is up and I, ask, I ring the bell to, once to mark the end of the meditation. Well, how was it? I asked. Did you have a lot of distractions? My father shrugs. Nah, what's the big deal? Well, did you dis- discover how much you think? Was it hard to concentrate? No, I didn't have a single thought. <laughs> None, I asked, surprised. Not a one. Well, did you feel peaceful? No, not particularly. It's kind of like how it always is when you don't talk. That's why humans talk. Nothing is happening otherwise. (laughs) I turned to my mother. I was, honey, I was aggravated the whole time about your friend. She must think I'm awful. At dinner the night before, my mother had blurted out that she thought the chapters of my novel were awful, and my friend Francis, who was there, told me later that my mother was jealous. I'd confronted my mother that morning, and she apologized profusely. I don't know what came over me, she said. Your chapters are lovely. Let's try it again, my mother says. This time I'll do it right. <laughs> I start to explain there's no right or wrong, but just say, okay, okay. This time I want to ring the bell. My father grabs a st- stick. <laughs> he ceremoniously hits the bell three times. We're sitting for two and a half minutes when my father suddenly belts out, Hello, Dolly. Well, hello, Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. While ringing the bell continuously to accompany himself. Buddy, please, my mother tries to interrupt him, struggling to reach across me to grab the bell, but my father won't stop. stop. He's having a ball. I'm the only one still staring straight ahead at the blank adobe wall, still attempting to notice my breath. I decide then and there that I don't have to save my parents. They don't count as sentient beings. (laughs) 
They're in another category entirely. I imagine the enlightened ones talk under the Bodhi tree. There are ten kinds of beings under the Bodhi tree. Now the Buddha turns his head and dresses me personally. And Natalie, your father is in the eleventh kind, out of this universe. So the folly of uh, trying to... Yeah. So there are many ways I could give five talks on this topic because there's, you know, there's obviously a lot to say about how we make this transition. Um, and the Dharma is really, you know, there's just so many great frames of reference for holding our experience. So, so from a broader perspective, on this retreat in terms of the Eightfold Path, we've been really develop, developing the last three factors the most. Right effort, Right, mindfulness, right, concentration, and the first, which leads to right understanding. And out of that, out of the understanding of clarity, of interconnectedness, comes wise motivation, wise intention, which in a way is also how we started the retreat. And, and I love how cyclical the Dharma is. And as we move into this phase of our retreat, we move into... Uh, the, the sort of the ethical component or the, the engaged component of the Eightfold Path where we, where we look at how we live in the world through our work, through our speech, our interactions, our relationships and through our actions, through our morality, through our ethics. And this is, this is, the, this is the more the, the growth or the learning edge as we, as we transition back into our lives. And there's a, there's a story that I'll quickly summarize that I love from the poet Hafez who um, had a student come to him and had all these mystical experiences and oneness and the divine and God speaking to him and all of this. And the student said, well, are these, you know, can you confirm these experiences of, of God and the divine? And, and Hafez says, well, that's great, but how many goats do you have? And the man says, goats? You're asking me about goats? I'm telling you about the divine? He says, yeah, how many goats do you have? And he, proceeds to ask the man lots of different questions. And at the end, Hafez says, you know, your uh, experiences of the divine are true only if they make you more kind and more caring to every person, every creature that you meet. You know, he asks him whether he takes care of the birds in winter and, his, and the people who work on his farm. And, um, so the proof, of our pudding, the proof of the pudding of our practice is you know, how we meet this moment with as much presence and kindness as we can as we, as we, as we uh, leave here. And, and, and differently in this phase of the retreat, we, and when I ret- talk about this retreat, I'm talking about this next month or two, um, we're moving from just the simple, somewhat passive uh, receptive stance of mindfulness where we're just seeing, receiving, allowing, understanding, letting go to a life that in- requires more engagement, more actions, more decisions. Yeah? We, can't, we don't have the luxury in our lives unless you're 
Well, we just don't. To just sit there, you know, we have to, we have to engage. And, it's, and it's, it's useful, it's valuable. We can bring a lot of wisdom and goodness to our, that engagement. And to, and to bring that same wisdom and clarity to our speech. You know, you, you began to talk, yes, some of you yesterday, some of you today. And just to see, you know, it's a minefield. You know, even the deep presence that you, you're bringing to this, to this time, you can see it's... How many people kind of, kind of felt like they lost mindfulness talking today? <laughs> I kind of says it, right? Yeah. So, not all of you, but a lot of you. It's very easy to get caught up in the energy, the excitement, the mind, the thinking, the planning, the, the anticipating, the, you know, and then all the social, the personality, the social stuff comes in. Did they like me? Did I say the right thing? And did I, you know, all of that. It's a lot to hold from the stillness of, of sitting. And so I find the Buddhist teaching uh, very useful around speech. You know, just some simple reminders you know, to speak what's truthful and useful. You know, again, we have a lot of clarity and insight. We don't need to share everything about what we know because sometimes it's not useful. This is from a comic strip, Bizarro. So there's a man comes home from a day at work and there's a note pinned to the door, I imagine from his partner, and it says, Dear Kirby, after all these years of meditation and in spite of your endless ridicule, I have finally reached universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere and non-existent and eternal and all-seeing and all-knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. <laughs> can we translate that into German? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> So he also said to be mindful of when you're about to engage in conversation, is this the right time, the right place, the right person, and the right place? They're very simple, but very, I find them very helpful. Is this the right place to be having this conversation? When it's midnight and, and you and your partner are tired and you're about to enter in a really delicate conversation, is that the right time to be engaging in that? Probably not if you're both tired. to be truthful, to be useful. There's a lovely list from, I won't read this list, it's very long, but from Ryokan, who was a hermit, spent most of his time, I think, in solitude. He said, when talking, take care not to talk too much, talk too fast, talk gratuitously, talk with your hands, talk, about, talk back rudely, to argue, to boast, to avoid speaking directly, indirectly, speak with a knowing air, use fancy words, speak ill of others, yell at children, speak while angry, name drop, use sugary speech, flattering speech, bad mouth. There's a lot of things to bear in mind when we talk. And speech can also be this beautiful, eloquent, poetic articulation of the, your deepest experience. Sometimes our experience doesn't come to full fruition until we've articulated it. Have you had that experience where we have this very deep thing, we almost don't even know what it is, and we start talking, and it's like, oh, that's, and the clarity emerges. So I'm aware of time here, so I'm going to 
say a few more things and then wrap up. To bear in mind patience. You know, it's another great teaching, the teaching of the paramis. Beautiful uh, uh, set of qualities. So we, we, we're developing the awakened qualities, the spiritual faculties, and the paramis, which, which a lot of them pertain to how we move in the world. Patience, perseverance, generosity, wisdom, which we've been developing here, kindness, loving kindness, which Jack will aim. There's a whole area of how we meet the world with love and kindness that Jack will speak to tomorrow night. There's the framework of the precepts. Which are, which are a refuge and a safety and also a guide and protection. How we navigate the, the intricacies of our lives, of non-harming, of how we now, you know, when we uh, release you from the practice of celibacy, how we engage in our sexuality in a conscious, kind, loving way to ourselves and others. Beautiful practice. How we, how we engage with the world without taking in intoxicants which may be, for you, your drug of poison, or it may be TV, or it may be listening to too much media. The practice of generosity. I find another very beautiful bridge between the inner world of silence and stillness and the outer world of connection. Generosity connects us, connects the heart. That's why the Buddha taught so much about it. Bring so much joy. And to share the, 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 the power of your presence is such a beautiful gift. So, a couple of things to close. One is to, um, to be realistic with your intentions. So we can often leave a retreat very idealistic and with, with very grandiose uh, hopes and wishes for our practice and our lives. Well, I'll sit five hours in the morning and I'll sit in and... You know. It doesn't work to set ourselves an impossible high standard and then to fail. It just doesn't work. So to be realistic, to be... To, and as an expression of kindness... This is a poem called Dharma from Billy Collins. Somehow pertains to this. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money or the keys to the doghouse, never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. Who provides a finer example of a life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate Gandhi with his staff and holy diapers. Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her brown coat and her modest blue collar, following only her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing, followed only by the plume of her tail. If only she didn't shove the cat aside every morning and eat all his food. What a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes, 
if only I were not her god. So maybe some of you going home to your pets, you know, who are sometimes the greatest Buddhas and the greatest teachers. Patience, kindness. They don't give you a hard time that you left, they're just happy to see you. <laughs> so lastly, I'm going to close a poem um, with a poem that I wrote uh, a while ago, um, which is about not hiding your light. You know, you're, you know, from where we sit, we see that your fountains of, you've generated so much beauty and so much light. You know, it's like it's almost palpable. And to, uh, uh, to not be shy in sharing that. Again, it's this practice of generosity with yourselves. Sometimes the bright lips of the hibiscus flowers burst so bright out of their buds that they only shine but for a day before they coil quietly into their own withering demise. But what would it be to radiate that light, that brief, in this dusty and tempered life? What is it you would display if all you had was this one day to reveal your glory to the world? So let's sit for a minute. All the frogs and all beings cheer you on. Jack has reminded me to remind all of you that we are now in silence. So, um, thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.